Revelation chapter 4 is our text for this morning. Revelation chapter 4. I chose this text for this morning with a full awareness of what we often bring to the table when we open the book of Revelation. Admit it, you're a little bit excited about what we're going to jump into this morning. This is an awesome book. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it is the last book of the Bible, and this morning we find ourselves in the fourth chapter. I'm currently preaching through this book in our church and uh, back home in Kansas City. It's the first time I ever introduced a study of the book of Revelation that was met with cheers and applause. People want to hear what this book has to say. It's an exciting book. It's a fascinating book. Earthquakes and fire and blood and angels and dragons and death and resurrection, battles, kings, beasts. This book has horses with lions' heads that breathe fire. This book has locusts with the faces of women and a painful stinger. Okay, I got nothing from you guys there. Are you kidding me? This book is a page turner. I mean, this book is exciting. I was sitting in a sermon once on ecclesiology, on a study of the church, and I was sitting next to a few students, and I saw one of them flipping through the book of Revelation. And I'm wondering, what is he doing? What is he catching that I'm not tracking with? And after the sermon, I asked him, what were you doing in the book of Revelation during that sermon? What did you hear that I didn't? And he said, well, ecclesiology is boring. Revelation is awesome, which isn't correct in regards to ecclesiology, but the book of Revelation is an exciting and fascinating and captivating book. But I think that many of us bring some misconceptions to this book that are essential for us to straighten out and clarify before we dive into our text this morning. Many of us misunderstand even the very purpose of this book. The book of Revelation is not about building charts of the end times. The book of Revelation is not about the timing of when Jesus is going to return. The book of Revelation is meant to change people. It is a letter written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He was banished there for the preaching of the gospel. And when he was there, he received a vision of and about Jesus Christ. He recorded that vision and was told to send it out specifically to seven churches that are in the the Asia minor, minor area. He sends what we have today, the book of Revelation, to these seven churches. And this letter circulated throughout them. And, and he sends it to each of these seven churches, even though each of these seven churches are in very different positions, spiritually speaking. He sends it to, to a healthy church that's doing well to encourage them to, to press on. He sends it to, to unhealthy churches. He sends it to churches that are filled with unbelievers. He sends it to churches that are about to face persecution. He sends it to all different sorts of churches. Every, Every category of church that we could even conceive in our mind is included in, in who the book of Revelation was initially intended to be sent to. Which is just fascinating because when I think of the book of Revelation, I think this is for the most mature of individuals. I mean, this is the deep stuff. This is perhaps the most difficult book to understand and to interpret with all that is written in it. 
This book was intended to be written to mature Christians, immature Christians, unbelievers. Because the book of Revelation is intended to change people. I've summarized it this way. The book of Revelation is meant to produce repentance and faithfulness in those who hear it. That is is why this letter that we're going to catch just a glimpse of this morning is written. The book of Revelation is meant to produce faithfulness and repentance in those who hear it. Now we're going to jump in this morning at the very beginning of this book. Just thus far in the book of Revelation, John has has received a a, a brief face-to-face conversation with Jesus Christ. Jesus tells him to write down what you see. He's then told to write down an individual message to each of the seven churches to which this is going to be sent. And then we enter chapter 4 where John enters into the first of a series of visions in this book. That is our text this morning. Revelation chapter 4. The beginning of the visions that John receives on the Isle of Patmos. Let's read chapter 4. You can follow along in your Bibles. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, was speaking with me. He said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. With one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before their throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed And were created. Last week, Pastor Justin kicked off a series that you are going to be beginning as a church titled Knowing God. 
examining and seeking to understand as well as we can the Trinity this morning, I thought it would be fitting for us to focus specifically on God the Father as I believe he is in heaven right now. Revelation chapter 4 is a text about what we often refer to as the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and he is described in glorious fashion in Revelation chapter 4. Before we dive into the specifics of this text, I want us to understand where this book is going for just a moment. After we see God the Father revealed in Revelation chapter 4, the the scene is going to change to focusing on Jesus Christ depicted as a lamb in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus Christ is going to be shown as the one who is worthy, specifically worthy, to open what's described in Revelation as the seven seals. Those seven seals describe God's judgment being poured out upon humanity. And there's all sorts of things that are described in that scene. Famine and hunger and war and death and vengeance and earthquakes and and more. Our text this morning is the beginning of that scene. The beginning of God's wrath being poured out upon humanity. It begins with looking at who God the Father is and how he is revealed in heaven. How we are prepared for those scenes that are coming later in the book of Revelation, as we fix our eyes on God the Father, every tribulation that will be poured out upon humanity comes from and leads to the worship of God. That's such an important principle in the book of Revelation, and it's why this text exists this morning. Because every trial that's going to take place, every tribulation that's poured out upon humanity, comes from God ultimately and leads to his worship. It may be a difficult truth to wrap our minds around, but it's essential to understanding this book. All that we see here comes from God and leads to his glory and his worship. And that all starts in this scene. In Revelation chapter 4, I'd like to break down this chapter this way for us this morning. Two awe-inspiring elements of the overwhelming scene in the throne room. If you're taking notes, that's how we're going to structure this this morning. Two awe-inspiring elements of the overwhelming scene in the throne room. The context is set in verse 1. After this, That is, after John received the message about the seven churches, he looked up towards heaven and we read that he beheld a door standing in heaven. And he heard a voice. The voice that John heard is is not one that he's hearing for the first time, but one that he heard earlier in the book. He hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Now, if you're anything like me, you may ask, what exactly does a voice that sounds like a trumpet sound like? I'm going to show you. No, I'm not going to show you. No idea. What we're going to see all the way through the book of Revelation is that John is grasping for terminology to try to describe what it is that he's hearing and what it is that he's seen. And what becomes painfully clear, even in this chapter, is that words are going to fail him. What he hears, there's a voice that's speaking to him, and it doesn't even sound human. It sounds like an instrument. It sounds like a trumpet, but it's speaking. John hears this voice. The same voice that he heard in chapter 1 when Jesus Christ spoke to him for the first time. But this time it speaks to John and says, come up here. 
There's a door standing in heaven that John sees, and there's a voice that he hears, and the voice says, come on up. Come up to the door, and I will show you what must take place after this. John writes in verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. That is, that is vision terminology, terminology. John immediately enters into a state with which he is not familiar he enters into this state that he describes as being in the spirit. The, the, he's, he's entering into a spiritual realm. He is in a vision. I believe visions are not happening today like they are in this text. These kind of texts don't give us license to radically reinterpret our dreams. God specifically calls John into a spiritual state where he is going to reveal for him a message. Jesus speaks to John and says, come up here. And John immediately finds himself in the spirit. And then the vision begins. We read in verse 2, he says, and behold. And I looked, and I saw, and I beheld a throne. The first thing that John sees, we can stop right there. The first thing that John sees is a throne. Now, a throne is not as intimately familiar in our context as it would have been to John, but we're familiar enough with what it means. John opens his eyes, and he sees a position, a place of power and authority. He sees the location from which one would rule. He sees the throne where a king would rest, an authority, a power, the source of all sovereign rule from heaven. John opens his eyes and he beholds a throne. But he quickly moves past the throne in verse 2 and he, he notes not just the throne in heaven but the one seated on the throne, he says in verse 2. I saw not only the throne but there was one sitting on the throne, he says. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. And carnelian. John starts to use what we call simile terminology here. He says, what I saw kind of looked like a jasper. It, it kind of looked like a, like a carnelian, he says. And that's the type of terminology that John uses all through the book of Revelation because, again, he is grasping for descriptions for what he's seen. He's seen something that is not earthly, but all that John knows is what is on earth. And so he uses earthly pictures to try to describe what it is that he's seen. But it's not going to do it justice, which is why repeatedly he's going to say, it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like that. I saw an animal, and it looked sort of like a lion, but not really a lion. Well, he looks at the three and he sees one sitting on the throne and he describes the one who is sitting on the throne as appearing like precious stones. The first description he uses is the one that he saw seated on the throne appeared as a jasper. That is a, a transparent stone, pro probably something like a diamond that we would have today. John looks at the throne and he says, I saw someone sitting there and he was like a diamond. Not just like a diamond, he keeps going. He also describes who he sees on the throne in appearance as a carnelian. Some of your translations may say a sardius. This is, this is a red stone, similar to like a ruby. 
The one on the throne looked like a diamond and a ruby. (laughs) So the question that we have to ask is, what is John saying? What is he describing? What is he seeing? Because I personally can't imagine walking into a room, seeing someone sitting on a chair on a throne and saying, he looked diamond-ish. But that's what John says here. That's how he describes what it is that he sees. What is he communicating? Someone suggests that he's communicating the value of the one that he sees. I don't don't think that that's likely. What we see all through this chapter and through the whole book of Revelation is not an ascribed value to what he's seen, but literally just a desperate attempt at the appearance of of the one that he sees. And that's specifically what he says in verse 3. He says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. John is describing what he sees. So some would take that and say, well, maybe he's describe, ascribing like, like a visual value to it. Similar to like, you, you, you may say to your wife, you, you look like a million bucks. Perhaps that's what John's doing here. He, he, looked, <laughs> he looked really valuable. His appearance was, was like a diamond, like a ruby. I think that that's probably closer to the intention here, but I think specifically John is visually seeing something that resembles how we would describe precious gems. And I have no idea what that looks like, which is why John is grasping for terminology here. Just makes you wonder, doesn't it? What did he see? Something like a diamond. Someone who somehow resembled in John's mind a diamond in a ruby. Precious stones. Beautiful. Shining, breathtaking. What John reaches for are, are visual things that resemble those kind of emotions in our life. So the question is who is John seeing here? Is it Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that this is God the Father. I think that we can argue from that conclusively in the book of Revelation. We're going to see Jesus come on the scene in Revelation chapter 5. He's going to be depicted as a lamb. And and that lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, is going to walk up to the one who's seated on the throne, I believe to be God the Father, and he's going to take a scroll out of his hand. So we see the Son and the Father interacting in this scene, meaning that the one sitting on the throne here, who appears to John as a diamond and as a ruby, is God the Father. He sees one sitting on the throne whose scripture tells us elsewhere we can't actually look at. Right? That's what Moses is told when he asks to see God's glory. God says, you can look at me, but if you see my face, you die. And maybe that's, that's some of the understanding of what we're seeing in this text, that, that John, John cannot behold God in all of his glory, and so God is revealed to him in, in, in a limited way, in the limited way in which John experiences God here is, is as you would experience a, a precious stone. In verses 2 and 3, John focuses on the central point of this scene. God the Father reigning on his throne. It's interesting that John doesn't talk more about this. He's going to start to focus on everything that is surrounding the throne, and I think it's because there's just nothing else to say. 
John has one shot at explaining what he sees, and, and, and he does the best that he can, and it's what we're left with in verses 2 and 3. But immediately then, he transitions in the second half of verse 3 to describing not the one who is on the throne, but what surrounds the throne. Look at the second half of verse 3. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, so what is it that surrounds the throne? We've talked about the throne. We've talked about who's on the throne. Now what surrounds the throne? Well, it's a rainbow. There's a rainbow surrounding the throne in heaven, but not a rainbow as you would often understand a rainbow. No, it's a green rainbow. It's a rainbow that appears like an emerald. An emerald is a, is, is a green stone. just fascinating think think through this scene when we think rainbow what do we think we think half circle in the sky with seven different colors john looks at this scene he sees something all the way around the throne it's a circle and it's green which is nothing like a rainbow but that's how john seeks to describe what what he sees he says it's kind of like a rainbow but it's green and it's it's surrounding the throne he then moves on Around the throne also, not only is a rainbow, but there's 24 more thrones all around the central throne on which God the Father sits. And on these thrones, verse 4 says, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So, throne, one sitting on the throne, rainbow around the throne, 24 thrones around that rainbow, and 24 elders sitting on those 24 thrones. The, the question that we all ask coming to this text is, who are these elders? Is it like the top 24 Christians in all of history? Who gets to be the ones who sit on these 24 thrones? One of the more popular suggestions is that perhaps it's the 12 apostles and, and, and the 12 representatives from, from the 12 tribes of Israel. Sounds good. Ultimately, we don't know. If you came looking for specific answers on these kind of questions this morning, you're going to leave disappointed because we're not told who these 24 elders are. My, my leaning is that these are just a, a, a certain specific class of angelic beings throughout the book of Revelation. They function as elders. We're told that these individuals are sitting around the throne and that they're wearing white. White garments. White garments throughout the book of Revelation represent someone who is pure, someone who has no stain, someone who is completely righteous. We're also told that they wear crowns upon their heads. That they too have authority. That they too have power. That they have been in, placed in positions of, of ruling as a king. Why do we focus on these 24 elders? We'll come back to that in a little bit. They're going to play a key role in this scene as we move through this chapter. But John continues to move on. He's seen so much around the throne. He's seen these 24 elders. They wear white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Remember those crowns. They're going to be important. Verse 5, from the throne, I saw more. I'm focusing in on the throne, and you know what I saw? I saw flashes of lightning pouring out from the throne. He says that in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. 
Picture yourself in this scene. This is unbelievable. He's watching the throne. Lightning is pouring out. Thunder is rumbling. Probably the ground that John is standing on. He describes it as rumbles. It's, it's shaking him. The power in this scene, the, the closest way John can describe it, is the storms that we experience on earth. Like I said before, I grew up here in Naples, Florida, and people ask what it's like to live in Naples, Florida. I describe things like the beach, describe things like the great weather. I forgot about the storms. The storms this week have been unbelievable. We came down to hang out in Naples, Florida, and we got rained on every single day. And not just rained on, but lightning and thunderstorms that are terrifying. Everyone asks living in Kansas City if we live in fear of tornadoes. No, I've never seen a tornado. But nine times this week, I thought I was going to get struck by lightning. Beautiful Naples, Florida. It's it's terrifying though, right? In in the midst of a powerful storm, lightning and thunder, when you're surrounded by that, it's, it's frightening. It's dangerous. Trying to keep my son this week from running out into the storm. It's dangerous. It's scary. John beholds the throne and he beholds something terrifying. Lightning and thunder and shaking and rumbling. He keeps going. Second half of verse 5. And before the throne, <laughs> there were burning seven torches of fire. Seven torches of fire are burning before the throne, and they are the seven spirits of God. <laughs> one of what I believe is one of the more confusing parts of the book of Revelation is the fact that the spirits of God are described in this sevenfold thing. The Holy Spirit is who is being depicted here. We can gather that from chapter 1. He's described as seven spirits all through the book, and I cannot figure out why. Some have suggested that it, that it seems to point to, to his perfection, and, and that may be true, but if that's the case, I don't know why it wouldn't be the seven fathers and the seven sons and the seven spirits. For whatever reason, as John beholds the, the, the Holy Spirit, he's depicted sevenfold, and it's a fascinating thing all through the book. What John observes is God the Father is there on the throne, the intense scene surrounding the throne. And immediately before the throne is the Holy Spirit, depicted as seven torches of fire. And before the throne, verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. If you're like me, at this point, you've lost track of exactly where we are in this throne room. But he says that right in front of the throne, before the throne, there's this sea of glass. It's like an ocean, but it's like an ocean that's made of glass. In fact, he describes it more carefully. He says it's kind of more like crystal. So what does that mean? I think when we come to the book of Revelation, we could spend a lot of time asking what each one of these nuances is emphasizing about this scene. Many want to decipher every detail of these stories. Some have tried to say that the jasper stone we saw earlier symbolizes God's purity. The sardius is his anger. The rainbow is his promises. The lightning means he's dangerous. The thunder means he's terrifying. The seven spirits symbolizes his perfection. It may be true. But also it may not be true. Uh, Attempts like this are generally conjecture and ultimately performed in vain. 
The purpose of this scene is not to decipher every nuance of this scene. The purpose is to be amazed at what we see in the throne room. The purpose is to be shocked and in awe by what we behold. That was John's response as he's grasping to describe it. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. I'm, 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 I'm wowed. I'm floored at what I've seen. The sea of glass is just another feature in this glorious scene. Before the throne was, was this surface. It, it was like water. It was like a sea, but it was like glass. It was like crystal. It's almost as if it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a glass floor, which would have been foreign to John. But that's how he describes the throne room. Later on in verse 6, he describes yet another feature. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Okay, so this, I mean, this story gets from weird to weirder, right? We have four creatures that are alive They're immediately surrounding the throne. They have eyeballs everywhere. (laughs) They're covered in eyes, he says, in front and behind. Later, he's going to describe their eyes as all around and within. They have eyeballs everywhere. Proverbially, we would say they have eyeballs coming out of their ears. These, These creatures are filled with eyes. And they're creatures that look like lions. One of them has the face of a man. One of them looks like, looks like an ox or a bull, and the fourth one is like an eagle that's flying. Also, they have six wings. So, so don't even try to find earthly equivalents to this. this, this is, these are heavenly beings. These are angelic beings, and fascinatingly, they're similar to what was read earlier in our service in Isaiah chapter 6. Saw the seraphim described in Revelation chapter 6. Perhaps these are those beings. We saw the seraphim in Isaiah 6 singing a similar song to the ones that are singing holy, holy, holy in Revelation chapter 4. It's an amazing scene, isn't it? It's hard to wrap your mind around what we've seen thus far in Revelation 4. In my own confidence, I tried to draw it. I was getting confused the longer I read and was getting ready to preach this passage, so I took out a pen and a piece of paper, and I started to draw this scene, which is a dangerous game, let me warn you. So I started with with the throne and then began to to try to draw what God would look like as a diamond and as a sardis, and then uh, started to add the other thrones and the rainbow and then the lightning and the thunder and all of this. I'm factually the world's worst artist. And so when this piece of paper was done, as I tried to depict it, uh, it looked, com- my, my two-year-old son has drawn better things with, with, with both hands and a crayon. You cannot wrap your mind around what's described in this scene. It, it can't be drawn, it can't be depicted. John is grasping to describe the glory that he sees here. What's he doing? What, what's his point? Why, why is he doing all that he's describing in this scene? John has one particular focus, one particular message that he seeks to drive home here, and that is that God is glorious and that he's surrounded with glory. Our God is glorious, 
and he is surrounded with glory. This chapter is all about God the Father. It is about him. Which is fascinating because he only actually spends a few words talking about the appearance of the one that he sees sitting on the throne. Most of his descriptions are focused on those that are around the throne. But make no mistake, this scene is all about God. My wife and I had a free night this week, and so we went down to to see the sunset on the beach down by the pier. And it it was a beautiful sunset, breathtaking sunset. You, You understand what's happening as the sun is setting and creating a beautiful scene, right? The earth is turning, the sun is slowly disappearing, and the light is causing beautiful colors all across the sky. But the sunset happens because of the sun. The beauty of that sunset is because of the glory of the sun. If you take the sun away, it's a really boring sunset. It's just dark. We we would be mistaken to say that I went out on the beach last night and I saw what I like to call the sky change. The sunset isn't about the sky changing. It's, It's the effects of the sun as it hits the sky. The sun is what causes the beauty of the sunset. Many have suggested that sunsets are more beautiful today because of pollution. You guys heard that? That because there's pollution in the air that the sunsets are more beautiful? Maybe partially true, but all through Scripture, we see the sunset described as proclaiming the glory of God. Psalm chapter 65 says that, says that his glory is proclaimed with the rising and the setting of the sun and its beauty. It's a beautiful scene because of the glory and the power of the sun. The throne room is very similar. We see all sorts of descriptions here and our attention is drawn to these creatures and to the rainbow and to the floor and and soon to the songs that are being sung, to the lightning and the thunder. But it's all about God. It's all about the fact that he is glorious and surrounded with glory. When we watch a sunset, we don't stare directly at the sun. We look at all the effects that the sun has in the sky. And that's what John does in this scene. He sees God and all of the glory that surrounds him. And he writes that down, that we would be amazed and astounded at this scene. God is glorious. And he is surrounded with glory. Well, all of that is essentially set up for what we see through the rest of this chapter. Halfway through verse 8, we start to see what these creatures and what what starts to be sung and take place as, as action starts to take place in the throne room. We see, again, a quick summary of those four living creatures in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. Here is what they say. Day and night, they never stop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's rightly understand that. These six creatures never stop singing this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They repeat three times over and over and over and over and over again that God is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is depicted and and fixated on in this passage. God's holiness is an essential one of his characteristics, perhaps his his primary characteristic. Many of us may understand holiness as God's righteousness, but, but holiness actually goes a little bit further than that. The word holiness essentially means to be set apart, 
It, 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 means, it means to be different then. It, it, it means that there is distance between him and everyone else. He is set apart from us. God is holy in that there is no one like him. Now, there's certainly moral implications to that, that, that he is righteous unlike any of us. There are none like him. He is alone. Many theologians have concluded that God's holiness is the most central attribute of who God is. All other attributes, they say, flow out of his holiness. Now, the Bible never says that conclusively, but rightly understood, that makes sense. God has many attributes, but these creatures who surround him forever, who are continually in his presence, you know what they're fixated on? You know what they can't stop talking about? His holiness. They don't repeat God's top three characteristics, they can't stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And and they say that for a second, and and then they say it again. Holy, 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 holy. They never stop. They never stop proclaiming the holiness of our God. Our God is set apart. In his love, he is set apart. In his grace, he is holy. He is perfect, unlike any other. He's set apart in his mercy and in his kindness, in his justice. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. And in all of these attributes, he is holy. There is none who is like them. Understand this. Do not make any mistake to the contrary. There is no one like our God. There is none who is like him. There is none who can compare to him. He is holy. He is set apart. And the creatures that surround him for all of eternity cannot get over just how holy he is. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They attribute this holiness to God who is on the throne, and specifically they call him the Almighty One. They reference his might and his power, that God is the all-powerful one. The one who is powerful, and not only that, the one who is infinite. Look at the song that is being sung again at the end of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the all-powerful one, who was and who is and who is to come, the infinite one, who was, he always has been, he is now, and he is yet to come. He is eternal. He has no limits. He's infinite. All of these ultimately descriptions of the holiness of our God. I just can't get over the fact that they don't stop saying this. These four creatures, full of eyes, that look kind of closely resemble creatures on earth, they just keep on saying how holy our God is. They repeat it and repeat it. and They're singing this song right now. It's being sung in heaven now. This is a song that has officially stood the test of time. We often measure songs in terms of whether or not they stand the test of time. And so often we measure songs probably in measures of like decades, right? Some of the most iconic and classic songs of all time would be those that have lasted two or three decades. 
doing some research on what some of those most iconic and classic songs of all time are, and, and that's generally their span. They stand the test of time. You're probably familiar with many of them. It's a hotly contested topic, by the way, but I examined lots of different, lots of different lists, and these are some of the common ones at the top. Hey Jude by the Beatles. Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. R-E-S-P-E-C-T by Aretha Franklin. Imagine by John Lennon. I Can't Get No... You guys aren't supposed to know that song. By the Rolling Stones. Those songs are... They're they're classics, right? They've stood the test of time. Not really, though. This song is a classic. Classic. This song never stops getting sung. It goes on forever and ever, and the ones who are singing it never actually get tired of it. You play some of these things that we call classics over and over and over and never shut them off. I promise you, eventually you'll get tired of them. This song never tires because God's holiness cannot be exhausted. And so these four creatures were told, never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is our God. It never stops. So they're singing. Verse 9, we're given a fascinating detail about the singing of this song. Verse 9, whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, whenever they're singing, which is always every time that they sing it, you know what happens? Look at verse 10. The 24 elders that we saw earlier in this scene, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Our focus returns to these 24 elders, these curious individuals that we saw earlier in this scene. These 24 elders that are sitting around the throne were drawn back to them. Because every time the refrain continues, holy, 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 you know what these elders do? They fall down. These elders have become perhaps my favorite, my favorite focal point in all of the book of Revelation because we keep coming back to them all through the book. Every time there's an incredible scene, we go back to the elders and you know what they do? Almost the entire book of Revelation, they're back down on their face. It's like, it's like the song is being sung and they fall down. And then maybe they, they, they get back up to their knees and then the song gets sung again and they're back on their face. And they, then they get back up, they're, they're standing up and then uh, an incredible scene happens that declares the glory of God. And you know what the elders do? They fall down. They have the weirdest job description. It's essentially to sit on their face before the throne. Every time that we see them, they're falling back down in awe of the one who is being praised. So holy, holy, holy is being sung and the elders fall back down to their face. These elders have been given power and authority. They sit on thrones. They have been given crowns. But whenever this song is sung, they remove their signs of authority. 
They remove their own personal signs of power and they fall down and worship the all-authoritative and the all-powerful one. They wear crowns, but when God is praised, they take off their crowns, they throw it to his feet and they bow down before him. Every authority ultimately will bow to God. Every power ultimately will bow to God because he is the all-authoritative and the all-powerful one. These elders also, not only are they bowing, not only are they throwing their crowns, not only are they leaving their thrones behind, but they're singing a song too. These elders are crying out what is said in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, these creatures were focused on God's holiness. What the elders are focused upon is God's worthiness. And and what they specifically say in this text is that God is worthy to receive all things. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You deserve it, they say. You deserve everything. You deserve all of the glory. You deserve all of the power. You deserve all of the honor. It's all yours. This is what they cry out to God, his worthiness. That he alone is worthy of receiving glory, honor, and power. Why? This is fascinating to me. Why is God worthy to receive all things? What this text describes as the reason for that is often not what I would guess we would say is the reason for God's worthiness. You know why they say God is worthy to receive all things? Look at, look at the end of verse 11. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy because he created. God is worthy to receive all things. He is worthy of all glory, honor, and power because he created all things. By his will, they were created. Even at the end of all creation that is being described here in in, in the book of Revelation, heavenly worship is still focused on God's role as the creator. Isn't that fascinating? Like you would think maybe at this point in history they would have gotten beyond that, but they're in heaven saying you are worthy because you are the creator. They still haven't gotten over the fact that God created all that there is and they worship him for that. I think I'm just convinced as we meditate on these things that we probably don't focus on that enough. We don't think about that enough. We don't sing about God's role as creator enough. God is eternally praised in heaven for his position as the creator of the world. And it makes perfect sense, right? You're you're, you're worthy to receive everything because everything is yours. You're worthy to receive all glory, honor, and power because you created everyone who returns it to you. It's all yours. It's all yours. You get it all. Everything, every power, every authority must ultimately answer to you. You must receive glory of all, from all, because you gave all things their being. Just try to remember that. Try to keep those thoughts on your mind. God gave me my very existence. 
And so my very existence must be devoted back to him. Because it's a gift from him. That's what the elders cry. So why is John telling us all of this? Why all of these descriptions about what he sees in the throne room, what is being said in the throne room, why the surroundings around the throne, why the creatures, why these songs? Very little has been focused on about God the Father himself. It's all been about what is surrounding the throne. And and I think the reason for that is this. The amazing creatures in heaven are eternally amazed with God. These creatures that baffle our imaginations, that we can't even begin to understand, imagine, or draw. These are amazed not at their selves. They're amazed with God. These amazing creatures are eternally amazed with who God is. As incredible as they are, they're not focused on their own stature. They're focused exclusively on God. They can't get over him. They never have the moment where they look down and say, I have a whole lot of eyeballs. I have six wings. I look pretty cool. They can't get over God. That is the one that they're devoted to. And so these amazing surroundings of the throne, these amazing creatures are eternally amazed with God. And I think that's why John describes this entire scene Our attention is drawn to these creatures, these elders, so that our attention would be redirected to God because that's what these do. In reality, all of creation is intended to function that way, to redirect our attention to the creator. You think here in Naples, Florida, the the sun sets, the ocean, the, the palm trees, the weather, You recognize that all of that is meant to redirect our attention to God, the one who created it all. Elsewhere, the mountains, the valleys, the meadows, the the forests, the lakes, it's all amazing. But the amazement of it is meant to redirect our amazement towards the one who created it. And that's what these creatures, that's what these elders, that's what this scene is doing. It's drawing our attention to the one whom it all surrounds. Everything in this scene in Revelation chapter 4 revolves around God, centers on God, and points to God. It declares his glory. So I wanted to close our time this morning with with just a few, I think, helpful reminders as we leave this text. Encouragements for us as we focused on God the Father this morning. The first would be this. Recognize the Father as the holy and omnipotent creator God. Recognize the Father as the holy and omnipotent creator God. Now, full disclosure here, I understand that that Jesus Christ is involved in creation. Colossians chapter 1 explains that to us. That the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. But the focal point on God the Father here ascribes glory to him because it was by his will that all things are created. And so our encouragement is to recognize him as the holy and omnipotent creator God. It is he who deserves all power, all glory, all praise, because he alone is the holy and omnipotent creator God, the sovereign creator who ultimately sent the Son. The second encouragement would be to worship God for who he is. 
recognize him as what he is described as in this text and then worship him for what we see here. Worship him as the holy and omnipotent creator God. Let me encourage you, one of the ways that we worship him for who he is is that we see scenes like this and we're just amazed. I think a lot of times we can, we can be grasping for application in texts like this. It's okay to look at a text like this and your walk away to be, wow, what a God. To be amazed at who he is as he is described specifically in this chapter. But we do that in many ways. We, we, we sit in amazement, we meditate on his glory, we sing, we pray, we ascribe glory to our God. Let me give you a third encouragement. It's really a sub-point of that second one, and that is to live in light of the glorious God. To live in light of the glorious God. In other words, that is to say that as we see the glory of God, that that matters in our life, that it makes a difference in our life, that as we say, wow, what a God, we live in the light of that glorious God. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, writes this. How we understand the person and character of God the Father affects every aspect of our lives. It affects far more than what we normally call the religious aspects of our lives. If God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the whole universe, not part of the world. No part of the world is outside of his lordship. That means that no part of my life must be outside of his lordship. His holy character has something to say about economics, politics, athletics, romance, everything with which we are involved. Live in light of this glorious God. I assure you, John walked away from this scene changed. Just like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, walked away, changed. Here am I, Lord, send me, he said. A fair walk away from this passage is that we say, I see this glorious God. I want to be on his team. In fact, that's one of the themes of Revelation. That as God is depicted in, depicted in this book, we see him and say, I would never want to be anywhere than in his loving care. What a God. He's glorious. He's surrounded with glory. He is omnipotent. He is the creator God to whom we all owe the entirety of our lives. If you have any questions about what it would mean for the entirety of your life to be devoted to God, let me encourage you to ask, I'd love to talk to you, or one of the pastors that's here at this church. He's worthy. He's worthy of all the glory and all the power and all the honor. He's worthy of all of your life. So let us not walk away unchanged from this incredible glimpse at the glorious God who is surrounded with glory. As we see this glorious scene, may our attention be redirected to allegiance to God the Father. Father, you are glorious. You are holy. And we are not. We have no right to compare ourselves with you. To attempt to stand next to you. Father, may everyone here, may we, like the elders in this scene, and like the creatures, fall down before you in worship, 
giving honor and power and glory to you, the worthy one, who is infinitely holy. Father, may we, may we not walk away unchanged from this glimpse at the glorious God. May we seek to live in light of who you are. May we seek to be obedient to what Matthew Matthew tells us in his gospel, just as God is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Father, thank you for who you are. May we never lose sight of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.